You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's interview is with Jennifer Frey, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina. We sat down with Professor Frey in the Gavin House Library to discuss her scholarly work and interests, her admiration for the life and thought of Elizabeth Anscombe, and her interdisciplinary project, Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life. Welcome to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Mark Franzen. I'm the program coordinator at the Lumen Christi Institute. And today we are privileged to have with us Professor Jennifer Frey, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of South Carolina. She was previously a Collegiate Assistant Professor of Humanities at the University of Chicago, where she was also a member of the Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts and affiliated faculty member in the Philosophy Department, as well as working a little bit with the Lumen Christi Institute. Thank you for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I thought I would start by asking you about the Virtue Project. If you could just share a little bit about what it is, how it was conceived, and sort of how how your own scholarship figures into the project. So, well, it's been my life, basically, for the past three years. Um, Well, actually, four years, because for these grants, you know, there's a a year where Mm -hmm. you're just trying to get the grant. Uh, And then there's the actual grant. But the project is Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life. It was a project that was kind of gestated here when I was in Chicago. And I met Candace Vogler when I was here. And Candace and I, intellectually anyway, are very close to one another. And we discovered this fact. I went to her one day and I was like, you know... We should, we should do something. We should submit something to this Templeton Foundation. And she was like, yeah, that's a great idea. What do you want to do? And I pitched just something very basic, like, oh, you know, we, sh- we should obviously talk about virtue and human nature, and, and we'll just run with it. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't even remember what our first proposal was, but after about a year of developing this idea, it came to be about this concept of self-transcendence. This is a concept that's coming out of the psychological literature, in particular, certain strands of positive psychology. So the basic idea is that, well, the basic idea that we had was that virtue is a state that is oriented towards self-transcendent goods. And so part of the project was to figure out what do we mean by a self-transcendent good? I came over the course of the project to think of it as something kind of like common goods, non-competitive. So like a a common good is something that my participation in the good doesn't in any way detract from your participation in the good. And it's something that is common to us in the sense that it's part of our nature to Mm. participate in this good or have this good as part of our life. But we had this idea that the cultivation of virtue and being a virtuous person is basically a process of becoming the kind of person that isn't really focused on the self, 
but is focused in a in an outward way on goods that you can't attain solely through your own activities. So you need some kind of cooperation, but also goods that are meant to be common in the sense that they're shared with others. So if you look at a lot of the literature and virtue ethics, you have this idea that the goal of human life is happiness, but they tend to think of that in terms of individual benefit or well-being. Mm-hmm. Candace and I shared the sense that that can't be right. That yes, I mean, virtue, so it's like an old classic idea that virtue benefits its possessor, but it doesn't benefit the possessor in kind of like this egotistical way. And so really the project was about exploring that and in particular by looking to other disciplines Mm -hmm. to try to figure out this question of, you know, to what extent does virtue make us such as to transcend ourselves? And so the project was actually one third philosophers, one third theologians or religious scholars from various faith traditions, and then one third psychologists and social scientists because we had an economist and a neuroscientist on our grant. And so we got these people together twice a year for a week for these like really intensive day-long meetings where we would present our work and all of the work was focused on figuring out these questions about virtue and happiness. And so after doing this for about two and a half years, we have just all of these research outputs. I mean, just a ton of research has... Mm -hmm has come out of this project, but also the goal of the project or the hope was that the work would be truly interdisciplinary. So, and that was why we had sustained working group meetings where people were developing their ideas with people from other disciplines because the way that interdisciplinary projects tend to work is more like parallel play in small children where like they're Mm -hmm. in the same room, but they're basically doing their own thing. We wanted it to be sort of deeply collaborative. And I think, you know, Candace and I had no idea if it was going to work out. I mean, we just kind of went into this like, wow, this could be a total disaster. But we were incredibly gratified by how cooperative and intense, I mean, the intellectual intensity of these meetings was pretty spectacular. And in a way, it was really surprising. I mean, that it worked. I mean, when you put together some theologians and some philosophers and some neuroscientists, you don't necessarily think that group of people is going to jive well, but they did. And so Mm -hmm. not only was it this incredible intellectual exchange, but actually a lot of friendships flowered over the years. And so that was really great. And now it's all winding down. Um, so the only thing that we're doing now is paying the bills, but also I'm doing a podcast. So Uh, I hear. Yeah. Yes. I'm doing a podcast and it's, it's spectacular fun. It's called Sacred and Profane Love. And basically you can download it for free on iTunes. Anyway, basically the podcast runs like this. Each episode is a discussion of an idea as that idea is explored in some great book where great book is you know, broadly construed. So mm-hmm. it could be like poetry or literature or film, um, which is not a book at all, but I'm open to that. Um, and it's, it's just a conversation. So we've had episodes uh, with, so my first episode was with a Thomas theologian, Father Thomas Joseph White, and we talked about Aquinas on grace and how Aquinas's ideas about grace get played out in the short stories of Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. 
And that that actually is one of my favorite episodes. It was a really great conversation. I got I enjoyed it so much. Um, the last episode that I did was with Zena Hitz. Zena is a philosopher at St. John's College. Um, and we talked about Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. And we talked about them by discussing uh, the virtue of seriousness. So studiositas, right, mm-hmm. versus curiositas. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, Zena had this incredibly profound reading of these novels, which are also incredibly profound. So, so I've been doing the podcast, and I've been having great fun. I'm going to keep I, – I need to have 10 episodes that I promised, you know, as outputs of the grant. But then I think I might keep doing it mm-hmm. just post-grant because – it's really fun, but also I've just gotten incredible feedback and a lot of people email me wanting to be on the podcast. So it seems like there's interest. So I'll probably keep that going. Another part of the project that's going to keep going like post-official project, that is to say once the money from Templeton runs out, we're going to keep doing the blog. So we had this blog that was always hosted on our project's website, which is virtue.uchicago.edu. I don't know how much longer that virtue, that <laughs> website will last, but the Virtue blog, so this is a WordPress blog. It's just called thevirtueblog.com. That is actually being handed over to me tomorrow. I get all the passwords and everything. That's just going to become my blog. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of excited, nervous about that, having to start a a blogging life. Who knows how that will go? But I decided to maintain it because it's incredibly popular. A lot of people read this blog, which means incredibly a lot of people are interested in Well, maybe it's not incredible. Maybe it makes actual sense that people are interested in happiness and the meaning of life, but they read the blog, so I want to keep that going. There's a sense in which the the project has sort of opened new channels for you in thinking about interacting across disciplines with other scholars. Yeah, it's it's been incredible. And there's just been so many amazing opportunities along the way. So last month I was at Yale with Lori Santos. Lori Santos teaches the most popular class in Yale's history. It's called Happiness and the Good Life. Now she's a psychology professor. And it's a psychology class, but it's like psychology light. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's designed that way because Lori's goal in the class is to make her students better people, Mm. which is like an incredible idea. No one's actually doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and so I I went to her class. You know, she has 1,500 students. So she teaches in this enormous, like, it's like a music hall. You know, it would be where, like, the orchestra plays, I guess. It's just an incredible room. And so I listened to her lecture and then we did an event together where we were kind of discussing whether a purely psychological approach is really going to get you everything that you need in Mm. thinking about, well, in becoming a better person, like are these, she calls them life hacks. So she has all of these exercises that she makes her students do as their homework, but they're designed to kind of retrain or rehabituate your mm-hmm. patterns of thinking and feeling. And it is actually, you know, it's based on some pretty solid science and I think a lot of it works, but my objection to Lori, and so we had this event where we talked about it, is I was like, look, Hitler could take your class and then he could be a better Hitler. Like he would think better mm-hmm. like, and he would be more prepared and he would be more organized. And, but I mean, like that's not virtue. Like virtue is something very deep and 
it leads to living well or being happy in this much deeper sense than you're getting at. Like it would be great if we were better organized and if we didn't have all these cognitive biases and all these things that she discusses that is important, but life hacking isn't going to get you happiness in the relevant sense. So going there and talking to Lori and talking to, I think we had 600 undergrads in the audience there and then like 800 people watched the live stream. Hmm. So, but just to be able to engage people in these questions and kind of show them the ways that philosophers and psychologists can think together about these kind of basic human questions. It's really exciting for me. And I I think there is a lot for philosophers to learn from the social sciences. But I also think that there's a lot for the social sciences to learn from philosophy, you know, especially when it comes to being really clear about our concepts. So what does it mean by happiness? Mm -hmm. Like, do you just mean a pleasurable subjective state? Well, why is that the goal of human life? I mean, so we can have these conversations and hopefully it, pushes people to do better research Mm -hmm. yeah so it's been great sure and if you can get undergraduates to think they're taking a psychology course and make them do philosophy without them knowing it that would be even better yeah well i think you know i think the culture at yale is a little different i think maybe there's less resistance there to the intellectual life but but yeah certainly the reason why Lori started this class is because, you know, she lives in the dorms at Yale or in their, I forget what they call them. They don't call Mm -hmm. them dorms. They have some, you know, pretentious name for them, (laughs) but they're basically dorms. And so she lives with them and she's like, these people are miserable. Like they need Mm -hmm. help. And so this class, which has really earned her like international renown, um, was, was, it started as a labor of love. Like she just, she really wanted to help her students because she sees that, you know, they're so full of anxiety. They're so miserable. They feel so much pressure. And then it's like, for what? Mm -hmm. Right. To make money and have a fancy job and have a good reputation. And she's like, look, you guys, I do psychology. And we just know as a matter of empirical fact that this doesn't make you happy. Now we also know that from, long-standing thousands Mm -hmm. year you know wisdom traditions in both the east and the west but we also know it now as kind of an empirical fact so people who do this you know science of happiness or science of well-being i mean one of the first things that they will tell you is that all these things that you think are going to make you happy not only don't make you happy but they actually make you miserable i thought we might move to well perhaps relatedly ask you about your own sort of intellectual journey and, and, and how you discovered philosophy as a student and, and sort of how you came to philosophy as a vocation. I discovered philosophy when I went to college. So when I was in high school, I wasn't really serious about the intellectual life. You know, I, I was a cheerleader. I had a lot of friends. I was interested in being cool, like a lot of people in high school. But when I got to college, I was really done with all of that. And so I I had become a, a very, very studious. I think, you know, my senior year of high school, I started to get really bored with high school things. Um, started reading a lot of literature. I became kind of obsessed with James Joyce. And this kind of thing, 
I don't know, maybe there was like a natural progression towards philosophy, but I didn't know that I wanted to study philosophy in part because whenever I said I wanted to study philosophy, people would make fun of me. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know why that was exactly, but I was definitely discouraged from studying philosophy. But I also, when I got to, I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, which is a really great university. And I took a philosophy class and I just never looked back. I mean, I, I loved it. Um, I, I had a little carol in the library, which they only give to graduate students, but I just begged them for one and they gave it to me. Mm. And I started reading uh, really widely and deeply. And eventually I got on to Augustine and Aquinas. And that was really life-changing. Reading Augustine's Confessions was, was really life-changing for me. And because I was raised, you know, as, as an atheist. And so philosophy kind of got me onto this idea that, you know, belief in God could be intellectually serious. And that was, that just never occurred to me. Um, I didn't think it was possible. And then, you know, I just, I fell in love with Aquinas, basically. And, and, and that never changed. And yeah, so eventually I kind of read my way into becoming a Roman Catholic, which was also really interesting because kind of like the one priest in Bloomington just had no idea what to do with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just coming at him with all this patristic theology and this Augustine Aquinas and he's just like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, I didn't read that in the seminary. (laughs) Um, But he he was funny because he would ask me like, but do you go to mass? And I'm like, well, no, of course not. (laughs) Of course I don't go to mass. (laughs) I'm just reading theology. So, So anyway, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. I thought that I wanted to go to graduate school to do medieval philosophy because that's what I really loved and kind of believed in. I mean, I kind of have a medieval mind in many ways. And so I did all of my stuff that you would need to do, so like my Latin paleography. You know, I had a classics minor. I took four years of Latin. And then I went to the University of Pittsburgh where there is no medievalist and no one does any medieval philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing contemporary analytic philosophy, which was a huge change for me. And I, I got into the thought of Elizabeth Anscombe mm. and have kind of been there ever since. And that brings us to the the topic of tonight's lecture that you will give later uh, this evening uh, on Anscombe. Maybe you can give us a a sort of elevator version of the of the lecture, or just um, uh, give us a sense of why Anscombe for you is such an important twentieth century philosopher. So I'd never heard of Elizabeth Anscombe until I went to graduate school, and she actually died. Uh, the year before I matriculated into Pitt. But Anscombe is the stuff of legend, and she was certainly this legendary figure at the University of Pittsburgh. I mean, one of the first things you would hear are these Anscombe stories. Mm -hmm. So she was this very, she had a very powerful, strong personality. So this is something that the first third of my talk is just, who is this woman, Elizabeth Anscombe? And the title of the talk is Living the Truth, And I think that what characterized her life in a really deep way was a commitment or a fidelity to the truth. She was really driven to understand things. She was also brilliant. I mean, Mm -hmm. she was very clearly 
brilliant. This was clear to everyone who came into contact with her. But but brilliance, right? Cleverness isn't wisdom. I mean, but she was very committed to understanding things and doing it as her teacher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, the bloody hard way. Right? She didn't want to cut corners. Like she wanted to understand things, and and as a result, she made major contributions to almost every aspect of philosophy. You know, ethics, action theory, metaphysics, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind. Anscombe's imprint is everywhere. She also is the translator of Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations into English, and that has become a literary classic. I mean, Anscombe's translation. If she had only done that translation, she would have left her mark on the history of letters. Mm -hmm. But that was just like a side project she Mm -hmm. did, um, basically as a favor to Wittgenstein, who trusted her to do it. And she didn't even know German. She had to go learn German, but Wittgenstein just thought, she understands what I'm saying. So just go learn German, <laughs> and, and then you could do this. So she, I mean, she was really a force of nature. And so I came to Pittsburgh, and everybody's talking about Anscombe. And in particular, everybody's talking about this book, Intention. And so obviously, I've, I read the book, and I read a, a very famous, probably one of the most famous philosophy papers of the 20th century called Modern Moral Philosophy. And this paper is, is like a brilliant screed against modernity (laughs) in ethics you know she slams mill she slams bentham she slams kant she slams hume she just sort of goes through it all and then she says you know maybe we should go back to aristotle and then she sort of gives this account like she tells everyone uh, we should really stop doing moral philosophy altogether until we have an adequate philosophy of psychology because without it, you're just embarrassing yourselves. And so she spends the next portion of her career trying to articulate that philosophical psychology. So she wrote this book, Intention, right, which is meant to explain the intentionality of human action. That's supposed to be one of the appropriate grounds of a proper moral theory. But she was very clear that her sympathies lay in understanding morality in terms of of happiness, of living well, where what we need in order to realize our potential, our virtues, virtues perfect our capacities, they enable us to achieve our end, our end is human happiness or a good human life, you know, this is all solidly Aristotelian stuff, but at the time she was writing it, no one is talking or thinking this way. And so she kind of revolutionizes ethics by writing this paper. And the work that I have done since I've been in graduate school is to try to build. So one, to try to interpret Anscombe, because I think by and large she's been misinterpreted, even by those who claim to be Anscombians. I think one of the reasons why she's misinterpreted is that she's bringing together two traditions that are difficult in their own right, but hard to square, namely kind of late Wittgenstein and Aristotelian Thomism. So she's she's trying to bring these two traditions together and mm-hmm. synthesize them. And so some of the work has been interpretive, but a lot of it has just been trying to build on what she's been doing. So how to think about practical wisdom as grounded in our capacity to act intentionally, a capacity that she tries to outline in intention, how to think about the metaphysics of virtue, how to think about 
the good? What, what kind of predicate is good? Like how does, how is good used in our language and how does this track the actual nature of good? Questions like that are, are the questions that concern me. And then of course, you know, there were all of the related questions surrounding my project, but mm-hmm. the goal is to try to revitalize Aristotelianism the right way, the bloody hard way, mm-hmm. right? By, by going back and thinking about the metaphysics of action and the human person. Mm-hmm. Because I think ultimately that's what she was calling for everyone to do. Well, to change topics slightly, you know, you, you told us a little bit about your discovery of, of philosophy, which went hand in hand with your discovery of Catholicism. It strikes me that even people who are raised Catholic often don't know that the church has an intellectual tradition. No, they don't. Yeah, perhaps you could talk about the sort of state of the Catholic intellectual life in the academy, how you see yourself as a, as, as a Catholic, you know, in a public institution. One of the things that was really hard for me in becoming Catholic was the fact that I just assumed that all Catholics would know this intellectual tradition mm-hmm. and that I would be joining this community of people who read Aquinas. <laughs> and then I realized no one's even heard of Aquinas, like, <laughs> or at least not where I was in southern Indiana. It was just very salt of the earth. Catholics, you know, it, their, their faith was really not an intellectual thing. And this was really hard for me because for me at the time, and this was problematic, but it just was the case, it was completely intellectual for mm-hmm. me. And so I couldn't relate to anyone. I couldn't relate to the priests. I couldn't relate to the nuns. I couldn't relate to anyone in the academy because nobody was Catholic. And so I just, I was this very strange animal. And it's kind of amazing that I, it's amazing to me, actually, that I became baptized. You know, that I wasn't just (laughs) like, you you know, yeah, 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 yeah. because nothing, nothing besides my conviction that it was true Mm -hmm. was pushing me in this direction. I mean, that's all that I had. And, but it was strong enough in me that I felt compelled, but I really was very isolated as a Catholic. I didn't have Catholic friends. I didn't know any intellectually grounded Catholics. Like I knew that they existed because I've read their books, mm-hmm. but I thought, you know, I'll never, I, I, I don't know. It was hard for me to imagine what sort of life I was getting myself into. And then when I moved to Pittsburgh, Things changed insofar as uh, it was a very vibrant. So Pittsburgh has an actual oratory. So mm-hmm. you know how universities had these Newman centers, but Pittsburgh was actual oratory, right, with oratorians. And they were both intellectually very serious, but also it was like a living, practiced Catholic faith. And so that gave me a community that I felt like I fit into, but it wasn't in academia. So these weren't like priest scholars. Mm-hmm. So they were solidly formed. But there was never at any point in my life in graduate school where my academic life and my faith life had any meaningful interaction. In fact, the only time that changed was when I came here to the University of Chicago and then there was Lumen Christi. Mm-hmm. And that was incredible to me because here was this institute dedicated to the Catholic intellectual tradition, but it's like right there at an incredible university. And through Lumen Christi, I met 
people like me, <laughs> right? Who <laughs> people who were academics, who were Catholics, who had similar stories to me. I met people who had read their way into Catholicism just like me. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not a total freak. Well, I mean, maybe I am a freak, but <laughs> there are other freaks like me in the world. And so for the three years that I was here with Lumen Christi, it, it was really wonderful because suddenly these two aspects of my life were integrated in a way that they had never managed to be integrated before. And I'm gone now, so but I managed to maintain it in large part because of the friendships that I established in my time here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was in my time here that I met many of the academics who are, who are my friends now in the very deep sense because we participate in the thing that we like the best, namely the intellectual life, but also, uh, you know, the Catholic faith. And so, so now for me, they're integrated through friendships but, you know, I'm at a secular university, which I've, I've only ever been in secular schools. I've, I've never actually been in a Catholic school. And I, I think that's fine for me. I'm able to integrate my faith and, and the intellectual life through these friendships. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's the best of both worlds, really, mm-hmm. for me. As far as Catholics in academia, it depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. I think if you're at Notre Dame, it seems pretty nice. Um, if you're, I, I mean, I'm in a state that's like less than 2% Catholic mm-hmm. <laughs> for one thing. So there are just no Catholics and there are no Catholics really at my university. I mean, there are a couple and I know them all, but mm-hmm. it's not, it's just not a Catholic milieu at all. And, and that's fine. Um, Because I'm there to do philosophy. I'm a philosopher. I wouldn't even call myself a Catholic philosopher because I was never trained explicitly in that tradition. I I don't come from those institutions. And those aren't, by and large, the people that I'm interacting with. And certainly where I am, no one would want you to teach Catholic (laughs) philosophy. There's Mm -hmm. not a need. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. I think, you know, at other institutions, a lot of... Catholic schools obviously have Catholic identity issues where there's a lot of hostility to the Catholic intellectual tradition. I think that's an obvious problem. I think that one of the ways forward in the future is to have things like the Lumen Christi Institute on these campuses where people can creatively find ways outside of mainstream academia to integrate the intellectual life and their faith. I think that's very natural for a Catholic because we have obviously the best intellectual tradition. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very confident that that statement is true. But how, how do we make that part of, of our faith? I think, I just think we're at this point where we have to find creative ways to do that mm-hmm. um, and just know that, you know, Catholicism increasingly freaks people out. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's, you know, I was raised by atheists, and so becoming Catholic was like, first of all, nobody expected that. Like, (laughs) I mean, maybe they thought I would do something weird, but Catholicism? I mean, people were just like, what? So I'm used to being an oddball at this point, because now I've been Catholic longer than I've been not Catholic. I'm getting old. But... 
you know, for me, it was always a, a mark of being other or weird. So it's really natural to me to be other or weird in the academy because it's just my way of being for a long time now. And I think people, you know, just have to be comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Well, Professor Frey, thank you very much for chatting with us. And we look forward to your lecture this evening. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.